Alrighty, welcome Elaine to the Hanging with Haney podcast. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Good to see you or hear you, I guess. Yes, good to hear you and see you through Zoom. So yes, we are yes. social distancing right now, being safe. Well, Elaine, happy Easter to you as well. Happy belated Easter, yes. Uh, everyone, Elaine is one of my good friends from high school and college, actually. We both went to high school together, and we both went to UT, so... Yeah, hook them, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, well, Elaine, I didn't just bring you on the on the pod because you're a good friend. Although that is one of the many reasons why I would, but I brought you on this pod to talk about one thing that we love, and that thing is movies. Yes. Yes. Well, Elaine, today we have a great topic for discussion. You and I are going to be ranking. Our top five Quentin Tarantino films with his recent coming out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we'll get into. That was actually one of my favorite movies of 2019. I thought this would be appropriate for the time. Great. Sounds awesome. Yes. So Quentin Jerome Tarantino was born in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 27th, 1963. Uh, as legend tells, he was uh, working at a video store. He quickly gained some notoriety as being one of the most garrulous video store workers, making recommendations left and right, having debates with customers, and giving really great content for people. Eventually, wanted to go on to make his own movies, and did so. He tried at first to go and make one called My Best Friend's Birthday, but unfortunately, uh, due to complications, that one wasn't really a success, wasn't really able to see a light of day, but then went on to get support for uh, his next uh, self-written and self-directed film, Reservoir Dogs, back in 1992. Honestly. One of the greats. One, one of the, the greats. One of the greats. From there, he went on to make Pulp Fiction in 1994, Jackie Brown in 97, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 in 2003 and 2004, respectively, Death Proof in 2007, and Glorious Bastards in 2009, Django Unchained in 2012, The Hateful Eight in 2015, and last but not least, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 2019 Best Picture nominee. Elaine, is it safe to say he has probably one of the best filmographies of modern day directors? Yeah, I would definitely say that amongst the current living directors, it's one of the top filmographies that I've seen. Yeah, I I would say so. Uh, And what was, how were you first introduced to Tarantino, if you don't mind me asking? That is a great question. I feel like before I watched Pulp Fiction, my dad had a friend actually who was working at the Austin airport mm-hmm. and he, my dad knew of the Tarantino film, The Course, and his friend who was like working with TSA, he, he was just chatting amongst the people, like checking people in for security and they were talking about Quentin Tarantino. And they're like, who is this Tarantino guy? I've never heard of him. (laughs) And at that time, Quentin Tarantino was like there being checked through TSA. And he's like, oh, I am actually. Wow. They're like, oh, wow. Have I seen any of your film? And then they just had a conversation about it, which is just insane to think about now. But Oh, my gosh. If only we had been there. I'm not sure when this was. This must have been years and years ago. Yeah. I would say that. Nice. Yeah. And what was your favorite, or not your favorite, I'm sorry, your first Tarantino film you remember watching? I would say that Pulp Fiction, I think, was the first Tarantino film I've seen, which is, you know, a high bar. Yeah. For it to set. (laughs) Yeah. But um, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Same here. Same here. I remember I watched that one, and I can't remember how old I was. It was definitely either freshman or sophomore year, so 14, 15 range, probably. But yeah, and my my first experience of, yeah, Tarantino was on an iPad, actually. I remember even just on the iPad, I was like, man, this is amazing. This is 
incredible. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being floored by it. Uh, literally, I was like on my floor, just like watching like this <laughs> intently. So yeah, it, and like you said, very high bar to set, very high bar. So right now here, we're going to be getting into our rankings of our top five Tarantino films. We're going to be going in ascending order from fifth to first. First, obviously, being our favorite. And, uh, you know, again, he has nine feature films out. I, I love pretty much all of them. I, I don't really think I have qualms with any. I will admit... I have not seen Death Proof. Mia culpa, Mia culpa. So I have also not seen Death Proof, but I will very soon. Nice. Yes. Um, I do have to say I, I don't I don't feel too bad about not seeing Death Proof. I don't <laughs> I don't think that's on the uh, the uh, Mount Rushmore uh, of Tarantino films, but uh, we'll see. You know who knows. So, anyways, Elaine, uh, would you like to go first, ranking your fifth favorite Tarantino film. Sure. I would also like to disclaim that I haven't, in addition to Death Proof, I have not seen Jackie Brown. However, the other Mm. seven I have watched. Yeah. No, that is a good one. At number five, I I definitely want to talk to you about this because, oh, this is so controversial, but Reservoir Dogs? Whoo! I know, I know, I know. We're gonna talk this out, but yes, yes, no, okay. we will. But the the only problem that I have with Reservoir Dogs is that I wish there was more of it. Yeah, that that is a good, valid point. So <laughs> it's an hour forty. It's the shortest runtime out of all of his films. Yeah, and there's uh, without giving any spoilers away, one of the main premises of the plot they don't show in the movie. And I think it would have been just very interesting to have seen that event occur. Yeah. Well, also too, actually, I was going to say, I think we are going to have to get into spoilers of these movies. So just for the listeners at home, spoilers. And if you (laughs) do not want these movies ruined for you, please feel free to skip through. But also, that should be a cue for you listening. That you should go watch these movies. These are great films. So, spoilers <laughs> Let's ahead. Let's get into this. Yeah, yeah, but okay, well, yeah, 1992, uh, Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs, uh, Quentin's first feature film. Uh, yes. He goes to the Weinstein brothers, gets it approved, and has Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, yes. Michael Madsen, Chris yeah. Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and so many other people in this movie. Great film. Very boxed in. Very closed off film. And yeah. I agree with you. I do kind of wish that there was more of it. So, and here, we'll get into the qualms. But first, talk, talk about why this is your number fifth pick. What, what do you like okay. about it? Yeah. As you were mentioning, the cast is incredible. Like, the... Mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi's character in Reservoir Dogs is both hilarious and just so, like, anxious about everything. Yes. It's amazing to watch. Also, like, I, like, physically hurt when, like, poor Tim Roth, oh my gosh, he got such a short end of a stick. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He, like, acted his heart out in this movie, and it's just so fan- wonderful performance. Just so fantastic. Yeah. And so... No, this movie is about a heist, but they never show you the heist, which is very exactly. interesting. Now, <laughs> Quentin has been criticized for uh, potentially stealing from another movie. I believe it's called City on Fire, in which it actually has kind of the same plot, the same premise. Okay. Yes, City on Fire, 1987, with Yun Fat Chow, and it's been criticized for ripping that movie off. Some say he's saying homage. Not going to discuss that on this podcast. People can go look that up. But yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't show the heist, which I actually kind of like. I thought it was kind mm-hmm. of subverting expectations, yes. as well as you get to learn about the heist through what the characters say. 
you know, mm-hmm. what they portray to the audience. And so it really plays with what the audience knows, the information they have, and what they can make sense. Because also, this is a movie about, there's a mole. There's a, in, there's a guy who's a pig. There's a guy who's a narc. There's a, a guy, rat. A cop. Uh, so, yeah. Which is played by Tim Roth's character. And how they get to the reveal of how... Tim Roth, Mr. Orange, again, spoiler alert, is the rat um, (laughs) in the group. And just how they tell this story by examining the different characters in this, their relationship to Joe, the mastermind behind all of this, and leading up to, you know, what happens when these characters find out for themselves who the rat is. And just watching them go from that journey of not knowing to knowing, and then what do they do with that information? I thought it was truly astonishing. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Elaine, what is your favorite scene in this movie? I don't know if it's a specific scene, but like many of Tarantino films, it's a nonlinear timeline. Mm, so yeah. it's kind of going, it'll tell a story and then go back and explain it as you were mentioning. Yeah. But I will say I I'm just like a huge fan of Tim Roth now because like he just when they went into the backstory after that it was revealed that he was the mole, the rat, it it went through how he had to act, how, what he had to say to Joe in order to get him to trust him to be part of the team. Yeah, just like him rehearsing his lines of the story that he was going to tell them and then just the I guess the one scene I would say is when he's t- it's it's like a flashback to a story within a story it's the commode scene yeah it's the commode exactly. story yeah and exactly. I want to get into that later and it'll come up okay but okay. yeah again if you if you haven't seen Reservoir Dogs please do so it's <laughs> very I mean it's just it's great storytelling film especially for not having a huge budget at the time. Very yeah. Impressive. Yeah. Well, thank you, Elaine, for your number five. My mm-hmm. number five, and I actually was a little surprised. Well, a little surprised, a little not surprised. I honestly thought this would be higher, but after really going back and kind of reexamining his other films, my number five is 2019's Best Picture nominee, once Upon a Time in Hollywood. What? Aaron's favorite movie of the year is at number five? Yeah, it was really good. I, I just thought, okay, Tarantino, this was him. He's not at the peak of his powers, I would say, but he definitely has enormous clout at this point mm-hmm. in his career, just thinking about it. You know, he's had eight other films come out, many of them widely successful, critically renowned, and is able to reach the masses too, I think. The people who don't, you know, won't always look for that high art. I'm not saying that Tarantino is always producing high art, but I think he does have a lot of highbrow content in it. And he is a really smart director and student of film. But yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So it's a story primarily focusing around two characters, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio's characters, as an actor and a stunt double. And it's told around the story of the murder of Sharon Tate. And it's very interesting how this movie weaves this kind of story There's been a lot of criticism that Margot Robbie didn't get enough screen time or this or that. And I can see those, but I also think she was not the main focus of the film. The main focus is kind of tell the story built around her leading up to the scene, you know, the murder, her death at the end, but then subverting that expectation and kind of doing a little bit of revisionist history, which was very... I don't know if electrifying is the right word to use when you see what happens on the screen, but just very shocking. And I would just say would exciting. Say. Yeah. Well, yeah. what happens when Brad Pitt's character kind of just wipes the floor with Sharon Tate's would-be murderers. But yeah, honestly. Yeah, the, the infamous um, Manson family members. Or yes. Such. 
And I mean, again, just I I loved what they did with this, the music, the the set design, the characters. Brad Pitt secretly steals the film, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, from, from yeah. Leo. I mean, Leo, I mean, he is just, you know, pitching over 100 miles per hour yes. the whole film. He is doing great, but it is just crazy how much Brad Pitt is able to do in just such little time and being so almost muted in a way. He's not this loud, brackish character or crazy eccentric, but this really chill guy. I think he fits it well. Yeah, they definitely complement each other's characters so well, like you said, because Brad Pitt's character, who's, you know, a struggling actor in Hollywood, some would say maybe past the peak of his prime, just trying to find work. He's, like you said, like acting his heart out, trying to get as many jobs as he can, um, wherever he can. And so he's doing his best, you know, mm-hmm. just really putting it all out there. Whereas Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, I believe is his name. Yes. He's, it's just, it's more understated, but it's very noticeable. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's really good. And it's very interesting how maybe reflective it is kind of of the real actors playing them. You know, again, Leo is definitely still in his prime. He's not, you know, having to play necessarily the heavy in, uh, right. in television, but um, mm-hmm. but he's, he's getting up there in years. Well, I'm, all I mean to say is the person within this, that's the thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that it's, it's so meta. <laughs> yeah. I think his character's name is, well, anyways, the person that he's playing, this former cowboy Western star, he's the one who's like struggling, not yeah. the like famous Leonardo DiCaprio, of course, but. Yeah, no, he's yeah, cra- definitely Rick. Rick Dalton is who Leo Rick plays. Rick Dalton, yes. Yeah, no, it's good. And I think, yeah, just to name a favorite scene from that movie, I think it comes down to either Leo in his trailer when he's upset about messing up his lines, or it's the best. <laughs> yeah, that or um. I do got to say, just Brad Pitt just massacring these these would-be murderers and kind of, I guess, giving this revisionist history justice to right. these terrible people, unfortunately, you know, who did such a terrible act in real life, which is not foreign to Tarantino, as we'll no. probably talk about later in another one of his big movies. Well, he, two, actually. Yeah, yeah. In a, in a way. In a way, Yes. But anyways, it's, it, was, it was really good. It was very good. So, <laughs> loved Parasite, loved 1917, loved Joker, loved a lot of movies of 2019. But for some reason, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I just really enjoyed it. I thought, I thought it was good. So that's my number five pick. Elaine, where are you at for number four? Number four, what I'm considering to be one in the same and that is Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. Yes, yes, which also Tarantino does consider one film. Correct. That's why I have them paired together. Yes, nice, nice. We actually had the pleasure of watching the first Kill Bill together. Yeah. I think two years ago? Yeah. But talking about favorite scenes, there's one scene in particular that you mentioned, and now it has stood out to me ever since we watched it in which is the animated, it's very short animated, or like, cartoon drawing. It's a form of like, yeah. yeah, of one of the characters' backstories, which I just think is an absolutely fantastic idea. Yeah. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about Kill Bill and what it's about? Kill Bill, again, a nonlinear timeline, is about a woman, Beatrix, who we come to find out that everyone at her wedding was murdered. And I believe we find her waking up in the hospital and Mm -hmm. she's, you know, like bedridden. They probably thought she would not wake up from her coma. And she's starting to put things back together about who killed her and everyone at her wedding in El Paso, Texas, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes, Um, El Paso, Texas. Yeah. And it's, so she starts thinking, okay, how did I get here? And it just explores the different ways in which she's trying to remember what happened to her months ago at her wedding. Yeah. 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 And yeah, and so we go to find out that it was her old 
boss and I guess kind of yeah. boyfriend Bill, the titular right. character of Kill Bill, who was a leader of a team of assassins. And so this movie is essentially about Uma Thurman's character, Beatrice, going and trying to kill Bill and all those who helped wrong her in the first place. So it was really good. 2003 and 2004 were the releases. Uh, Has also a very killer cast. Uma Thurman as the bride or Beatrix. Uh, Lucy Liu, Vivica A. Fox, David Carradine as Bill, Michael Madsen, uh, Julie Dreyfus, and again, many more. Really uh, just an awesome story, one that is referencing many martial arts films. It's so good. And yes, as you were saying, that there's one scene in which it is perhaps the most violent scene that is not in real life and that it's animated, actually. Correct. To show the story of Oren Ishii, Lucy Liu's character, and how she got to be where she is at. It's very violent, not good to watch with kids. Um, <laughs> no. Or, or grandparents or parents or probably anyone. But again, it's just very, I think, well done. And yeah, that's, that's very cool. And so, yeah, that's your favorite scene? I would say it's the one that stood out to me the most. Nice. And what else have you liked about this movie? And then again, this like making the difference between the first volume of Kill Bill, I would say the production design towards the end of the movie. I mean, throughout the movie, but mm-hmm. um, when Beatrix is going after Lucy Liu's character, there's hundreds of you know henchmen all having like swords, samurai yes. swords. Yeah, the, the and, eighty-eight. I believe the crazy yes. 88, I think. Crazy 88, yes. And just some of the production design in the last half of the mo- half hour of the movie is, is really fantastic. Um, volume one or volume two? As for which rank- ranks higher? Yeah. I, you know, on popular opinion, but I do think the first volume is ever so slightly better than the second. I, I think I had to agree with you. The second one has a lot of great ones, but I think when I look back and think back of what happened, I think a few moments in volume two, but volume one, I just feel like has so many. Yes. Really great. Yeah. Great. Totally. Awesome. 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 Well, my number four is none other than Inglorious Bastards. All right. Going to be doing one thing and one thing only. (laughs) Killing Nazis. (laughs) Inglorious Bastards is just a masterclass in screenplay and creating tension through dialogue. The movie follows a band of Jewish U.S. soldiers who plan to assassinate Nazi leaders during World War II and Nazi-occupied France as well as, you know, running into a few others who are trying to survive the war or get through the war. This has a great cast, Brad Pitt, Melanie Laurent, I think that's how you say her name, Christoph Waltz as the infamous Hans Landa. Ah, so good. Eli Roth as Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. Michael Fassbender pulling out, I think, all the stops and a pretty decent German or Austrian accent as Lieutenant Archie Hickox. And again, just going down the line, really good people. BJ Novak as well, really good. Uh, And just throughout, just from scene one, Tarantino is creating tension by having Christoph Waltz, Hans Landa, interrogating, interviewing this guy, making him feel comfortable, making him feel like, He's in control while Hans truly has the upper hand the whole time. And it's just so menacing, so intimidating. It's really incredible. And just, again, throughout the movie, there's many moments of comedy. You have Brad Pitt has this huge, I guess, what kind of accent would you say? Yes. Southern accent? Midwestern accent? I would say Southern some kind of southern accent as lieutenant aldo rain and the most american you can get 
yeah trying to yeah uh when he's trying to impersonate a italian <laughs> lord or whatever he is mm-hmm. really funny and then again just michael fassbender also as an undercover spy british british soldier undercover as a nazi doing his thing and is really really great one of my favorite scenes has to be the scene towards the end in the bar with Fassbender and a few other soldiers in there who are dining with the Nazis and there's so much tension in there and the aftermath of that scene is just crazy incredible I highly recommend yeah and you topped off my number three so yeah well here you if when we get to three if you want to talk about it more you can share you can share your thoughts I will but favorite scene was the bar scene for you. Yes. I, I don't know what you would call it, but the Michael Fassbender bar scene where they're, they're drinking and they're playing poker and he holds up the three fingers and it's not the way you raise three fingers if you're German. Correct. And just leading to, and I, I've heard this on one of the other podcasts I've listened to, one of the just favorite quotes in movies, a truly awesome line. Once he gets discovered to be not German, he says, well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking to Kings. And just like, (laughs) oh my gosh, what an amazing line. So anyways, yeah, so topping off number four, going, oh, and also here, we can, I can let you talk about the revisionist history in your number three. Yes, the first of the revisionist history on my list, we talked about it on your list with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But yes, similar to the revision of the infamous murder of Sharon Tate by members of the Marilyn Manson, not the Marilyn Manson, Charles Manson family. Yes, not Marilyn Manson. Charles not Marilyn Manson. Manson. Uh, very big difference. In this situation, it's even, I would just say, bolder as to say the murder of Adolf Hitler himself in a movie theater of all places. And so I just very much admire Quentin for being very, like, I, I feel like in all of his, throughout all of his movies, there's a nod to cinema. Mm-hmm. I mean, very clearly in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but in Glorious Bastards, in, I believe, even in Kill Bill as well. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and check. But for definitely staging it in a movie theater is such a unique idea. I mean, I'm sure there's many there on Hogan's Heroes and probably throughout other forms of war media, TV shows and movies, there have been fiction or possibly um, real life events of planned assassinations on Hitler. I think this one may be one of the most unique ways that I've seen so far. So essentially the owner of the movie theater whose name escapes me. She's a French uh, young woman who has, at the beginning of the film, is revealed to be the only surviving member of her family after Hans Landa has murdered the rest of her family. She's the only one who has survived and lived into her adult life. And they plan, the Nazi party plans on showing a Nazi-related movie of a Nazi hero um, whom she later meets in the film and actually has somewhat of a romantic interest in if mm-hmm. things had been different, obviously, which was one of the down, uh, like, wish it could have been situations. But her plan is to kill basically everyone in the theater, including herself, essentially, by locking all the doors and setting these highly, highly flammable film reels on fire mm-hmm. and essentially taking the entire theater down with the majority of the Nazi party, you know, all the officers and generals and Hitler himself. So it makes, in all of his revisionist histories, it makes me feel bad that I feel so good about watching people die. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. (laughs) But I think the fact that it is fiction and that, you know, yeah, it is like, like even in the title of Once Upon a Time, it's a story. It's trying to create like a what would have happened situation. So Mm-hmm. I will say the cinematography in Inglourious Bastards may be the best I've seen throughout the Tarantino films. Um, yes. No, it is very... Kill Bill again, also. But... Yes. Her name is Melanie Laurent's character, I believe, is Shoshana. Shoshana? Shoshana, yes. Yes. You know, it's crazy what is happening. And eventually it leads to the characters gunning down Hitler and his, his mm-hmm. party. Um, right. So it is kind of hard for me to 
be a proponent of his films because of the violence and because of you know yes. the gore and obviously in real life I don't support any violence and I don't support anything that would be happening in these movies yet in terms of just from a cinematic Correct. and storytelling standpoint it's just it's really incredible honestly it's very interesting very exhilarating and fun fact too, Trantino almost didn't make the movie. He was looking for someone to play Hans Landa and just could not find anyone. He'd written the character. This is one of apparently his favorite characters to write. And he was searching tirelessly for someone to play and wanted this person to be able to speak all of the different languages that Hans Landa speaks. And until finally, he stumbles upon Christoph Waltz, arguably a match made in film heaven, and pulls off, I think, one of the best movie characters, movie villains of all time. Shout out Christoph Waltz. He is incredible. (laughs) He is awesome. He won the Oscar in another movie, Django Unchained, and I think it was well-deserved. He is amazing. He is a great actor. So anyways, yeah, great film. So that was your number three. Well, my number three is actually Kill Bill Volume 1 and Volume 2. So Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. So they're again, that good. Yeah, they're that good. They're, they're not getting that. And I will say this. So in Glorious Bastards, I would say in terms of screenplay, in terms of writing, in terms of just creating tension with dialogue, does an amazing job. There's no dispute. You could argue it is a more polished film than Kill Bill. I mean, obviously they were 2003, 2004 for Kill Bill, 2009 Inglorious Bastards. But Kill Bill, the ode that it's paying to all of the martial arts films in the past is just incredible. To the Ang Lee movies, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, flying, kind of acrobatic fighting to the yellow and black jumpsuit that Uma Thurman's character is wearing to reference Bruce Lee and the game of death and many of his other films. And I just love hand-to-hand combat. I love exciting action. Again, the first battle where she goes to Vivica A. Fox's character and they have the fight uh, is, is honestly amazing. And they're fighting in this home. And then Vivica A. Fox's daughter comes home. They still have to continue. Honestly, just crazy. As well as then the final battle between Uma Thurman's character, the bride, and the crazy 88 to finally her versus Oren. It's just Mm -hmm. crazy. Very violent. Very bloody. I mean, there's that part where she splits a guy's head open. And of course, there's the other part where she takes the guy's eye out of his face which is very insane. Another bit of trivia for you, actually the reason why it switches to black and white is partly because the, I can't remember what the, I guess the MPAA, the rating, whoever gives the rating system out was going to give him an NC-17 rating because of all the blood. So by turning it black and white, they could somehow, I don't know, by loopholes, get out of that in order to keep all the scenes in. So, but also from a stylistic point, I think it's very, very interesting and very cool too when it switch, it does make the switch to black and white. Um, yes. Again, some great silhouette battles, paying homage to a lot of films. As well, you can go online and read millions and millions of articles just dissecting all of the stuff, how her character and her crew, what, do you know the name of their crew, what they were called? I remember they were all named after snakes. The, the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. So There it is. <laughs> if you, so that is, it's very interesting. It's a reference to Uma Thurman when she is talking about her pilot in Pulp Fiction that she does. Her character, Mia Wallace, does a pilot. Yes in which she is kind of in this Charlie's Angels type group, which is, I don't think it's called the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, but she talks about all the characters and they're all represented in this film, as well as each character's different attack style. You know, they're these different, the Black Mamba, the Diamondback, Mm -hmm. all these different snakes. Their fighting style and what they do 
is represented by their characters. Like the characters fight as the snakes would, or at least their style of killing their prey, <laughs> which is very interesting. There's millions of articles. There's those listening out there, you can go look this up. You can get lost for hours, especially during this quarantine time. Perfect time. <laughs> So yeah, so that rounds out my number three. So real quick, let's just go back through what we've named already. Okay. For for me, again, I have Once Upon a Time is five, and Glorious Bastards for Kill Bill is three. And you have... Reservoir Dogs as five, and then those two swapped with Kill Bill, volumes one and two for number four, and Glorious Bastards for number three. Yeah, Nice, nice. And honestly, those two, I feel like English Bastards and Kill Bill could probably alternate depending on how I'm feeling, how recently I've watched <laughs> them. But I think still, for the most part, if I think about what am I going to want to go back and watch just at any time, for me, it'd probably be Kill Bill. And I think that's what kind of gives it the edge. All right. So moving on to the, the final four, our top yeah. two. So Lane... What is your top two? My number two Tarantino film is Django Unchained. Django Unchained. This movie came out in 2012. It stars Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Kerry Washington as well. I forgot about her. And so do you want to tell us a little bit about the story, what happens? Sure. It has been some time since I've seen it. And I actually, there's been a few Tarantino films that I have watched with my dad because I think our, my mom has like exclusively not seen any Tarantino films because it's mm-hmm. not for the faint of heart, I would say, or maybe anyone who does not like the sight of blood or has a creepy stomach. So would not recommend if you were one of those people. However, my father and I are not one of those people for the most part. And we watched Django and Chain together. When we watched it, I believe it's three hours. Let me double check. But oh, two hours forty-five minutes. Yes, um, very long. One. It isn't. And normally, my dad cannot sit through like two-hour movies. Like that's too long. But the trials that Django has to go through until like the ultimate climax of the movie at the very last twenty minutes is just so entertaining that it just goes by so quickly. And that is why I have Django so high up on the list. Is that we did talk about how. Tarantino does have a very, like, like he's very capable of adding art and finesse into his movies and having those, like, little, almost Easter eggs of the Pfeiffers in Pulp Fiction being, like, mentioned as a backstory. And, you know, those little details. I think one thing that I noticed when we were watching the first Kill Bill is that the cereal box that Vivica A. Fox's character gets is a bit of an Easter egg. If you, I'll leave that one for those who want to see it, but just pay attention to the cereal box. There's just little details. However, when I am watching a movie, I do want it to be entertaining. And Django does an amazing job of that through characters like Christoph Waltz, who again, does a fantastic job, just so well done. From the moment we meet him to the moment he leaves the screen, it's it's just an A1 job, fantastic. As well as Jamie Foxx as Django, who becomes, as the title says, unchained from being enslaved to being an assistant to Christoph Waltz's character, who is essentially a bounty hunter. Yeah. Now, yes, it takes, this this movie takes place in 1858, where a bounty hunter named Schultz, played by Christoph Waltz, seeks out a slave named Django and buys him because he needs him to find some men. After helping him, Django wants to find his wife, Brumahilda, played by Carrie Mm -hmm. Washington, who along with him were sold by his former owner trying to escape. They eventually work their way to finding them on Leonardo DiCaprio's plantation. And the story kind of unfolds from there. And yeah, honestly has a lot of great action. This is along the lines of revisionist history, you know, the, in a sense, the slave African-American male getting to fight back and to kind of conquer, you know, this is very much a revenge story. And it was very interesting, very well done. I think, like you said, yeah, the action was very cool. Had a lot of hero moments in it and a lot of tension with Leonardo DiCaprio and Christoph Waltz. Do you think that Leo should have gotten an Oscar for his performance in this movie? Was he nominated? He was, I believe, yes. Okay. And that was for supporting actor. 
I believe so. Uh, I'll have to see. Let me let me just double check. Um, or maybe he wasn't. Or it says he was he was a winner, but I don't know if he was nominated. But still, I I argue that I kind of wish he would have been considered in one of the most famous scenes of the movie, this diner yes. scene where Leonardo DiCaprio breaks his hand on a glass and is literally bleeding real life blood all over Carrie Washington and over the other characters and just keeps acting, keeps going. And thankfully, Tarantino used that take in it. I, I don't see how you couldn't use that take. Oh, no, it, you, it's so like it takes attention to the next level when like the stakes are heightened and the fact that he like smears his like blood coming out of his hand all over Carrie Washington you can see like the repulsion in her face and how squirmish she is and it just it's authentic for a reason like yeah <laughs> so oh, yeah. but definitely so, yeah well good good pick at number two for me for my number two and this is tough and I think I've told you and kind of like Inglorious Bastards and Kill Bill, but in a much more fluctuating way. These two alternate on a regular basis. <laughs> but I think after thorough examination at number two, I have to go with Reservoir Dogs. Again, this is his first feature film debut. Yes. I don't know how you can hit it out of the park much more. You know, this was incredible incredible acting incredible writing incredible tension and i will never listen to stuck in the middle with you the same way again <laughs> after that michael madsen scene fun fact oh the car goodness. that michael madsen drives and keeps the cop in during the movie is the same car that is used in once upon a time in hollywood oh wow yeah that makes sense yes this movie has great tension the story of yeah not only the characters, but the audience finding out who is the rat, who is the inside man, learning about these characters, formulating our own opinions as other characters are formulating them. It was just incredible. Completely subverts expectations by having a heist movie that does not show the heist, and I think does so in a very real and meaningful way to arguably i think one of the greatest monologues of modern day history which is tim ross commode story in which his yeah. undercover cop character mr orange is practicing this story over and over and over again in order to tell to the boss joe to convince him that he should let him in and so in this story just it felt very hitchcockian like, this was just a real flex by Tarantino. He is just flexing his movie-making muscles. Like, it almost doesn't belong in the film, if you think about it. Like, the way it totally stands out is very, uh, not just art house, but avant-garde almost, I would say, in, in how it is shot when Tim Roth finally says the story. But it's beautiful. It shows his character, what he's going through, his backstory, as well as who he's trying to portray and has done so well. The spinning camera, being in the commode, in this restroom, all the dogs and the cops looking at him, the sound, it is truly awesome. And I think is one of the best 90s movies and honestly just one of the best movies in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, definitely. The only thing that I wish, like we've mentioned before, is that it shows the backstory in depth about Mr. Orange for obvious reasons. They have to explain why he is the rat, how he came to be part of the group. But what they don't describe or show in the movie is how the boss man, Joe, Joe and Nice Guy Eddie, how they come to know Steve Buscemi's character, Mr. Pink. Yes, that is... I wish so much that we could learn more about Mr. Pink. He is one of my favorite characters as a reference to another show that I listen to, The Rewatchables. He is the Dion Waiters of the movie. And that is a basketball reference to Dion Waiters, who does not have a lot of minutes, but he puts up a lot of points, a lot of rebounds, some steals, maybe a few blocks. And who's just really doing the most with such little screen time. And I just think every moment yeah. that Buscemi is on screen, the movie is just better. 
it, it is electrifying. He's a phenomenal actor. You want to learn more about him. And I love him as Mr. Pink. There is debate as to whether or not he actually escapes at the end or if he was right. shot by the cops trying to escape mm-hmm. with the diamonds. But after watching it, I would hope if anyone that he would get out. I'm like, yeah, you go, Mr. Pink. You, you take those diamonds. I hope you get away. Only one left living, so. Yeah. And plus that Mexican standoff at the end, just mm-hmm. awesome, truly great. And then the end with Tim Roth laying, dying in Harvey Keitel's arms. I mean, oh gosh, just talking about it just reminds me of why it is one of his best and why it for sure deserves, I think, in my opinion, the one or two spot. But yeah, I also think the runtime, one, I think it is a product of, well, okay, it was his first film. They probably couldn't afford too much. And, you know, it it makes sense. But at the same time, too, I I almost kind of liked it because it makes sure it's not too saturated. Like everything that's in there needs to be Uh in there. Like, I don't think you could argue that you need to cut anything. Right. But just, yeah, that stuff could be added. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, Mr. Blue and Mr. Brown. Yes. Just five more minutes about Mr. Blue and Mr. Brown would have been, I think, beneficial. Yeah. Mr. Brown, Quentin Tarantino, cameo. The man himself. (laughs) Ultimate flex, by the way, how at the beginning, the movie opens to him talking and to him telling all of these actors his idea, his opinion. And I just love that. That is, that is great. That is such a Tarantino thing. Mm-hmm. Very interesting as well that Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde, is the brother of Vincent Vega in Pulp Fiction, John Travolta's character. And there is actually talks that there would be a spinoff movie focusing on the Vega brothers. But unfortunately, just after time went by and both actors went on to do other things, it was never brought to fruition. Don't think it could be done now. Michael Madsen and John Travolta just aren't at the same places anymore in their career. Right. I don't think it would be as interesting. But what if? That is a great what if of Tarantino history. And so now, Elaine, the quintessential moment, what is your number one pick? My number one pick, and will come as no surprise, is Pulp Fiction. Yes, I agree, and it is mine too. (laughs) So we're just going to dive right in. For those of you who aren't familiar with this 1994 masterpiece, it's, it's hard to describe what it is about. IMDb has kind of the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer a gangster and his wife, and a pair of diner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. And that's honestly, I think, the best you can do to sum it up. Yes. A sentence or two. Again, this movie came out in 1994 with Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, John Travolta, Samuel L. Jackson, Bruce Willis, Ving Rhames, Eric Stoltz, Uma Thurman, as well as Steve Buscemi, Christopher Walken, and Tarantino and Harvey Keitel, as well as Lawrence Bender. Oh my gosh. Travolta, Jackson, Willis, Rames, Thurman, Keitel, Buscemi, Walken. I mean, this is just crazy. This is amazing. And yeah, it's just a story of four different vignettes following you know these different characters so you have john travolta vincent vega samuel jackson jules winfield as two mob hitmen bruce willis as butch uh, who's a boxer hired by ving rames's character marcellus wallace in order to throw a fight but then gets into some tension when he doesn't as well as the relationship between uma thermos character mia wallace mrs wallace and john travolta vincent vega and just, yeah, so much more. It is, it is crazy, Elaine. Where, where do we even begin? Where do we begin? I think we have to begin where the story did and talk about the screenplay. Yeah. Well, 
the so for, for of the movies that we described so far, besides Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards, and with the third being Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, those three we discussed were, as you said, revisionist history. Yes. Whereas Reservoir Dogs and basically all of his other films are nonlinear. Mm-hmm. This story is where it's nonlinear to like the extreme, like as far as you can push nonlinear while still making sense, mm-hmm. that is the story. And yes. So you think it starts out from the beginning, um, the two, Tim Roth and his girlfriend in the diner. Mm-hmm. And it goes from, it cuts right at, right at the point where they decide to rob everyone in the place. Cuts right there and jumps to the two gangsters who are trying to go after a package for, I think, Marcellus. Yes, yes. And you think, okay, this was a backstory to the first story. But it just gets so complicated from there. However, the characters are so set, they are so definitive that you know exactly which story you're talking about. When it cuts to the Bruce Willis one, Butch, and his story about being a boxer, you are immediately placed in that timeline. And when it all starts to come together, you start to understand what the overall story is Mm -hmm. yes these are very intricate stories that are interwoven and you don't see that at first and it's hard to tell and this is a movie that definitely rewards viewers upon a rewatch and just upon every rewatch you learn more you see something more and it's very interesting. And it's very complicated how to do that and to tell it in a very compelling way, but also a way that you can understand. Um, again, I remember at, you know, 14 or 15, whenever I first watched this, being confused, but oddly still getting it. And since then, yes. upon rewatch, I have just, my admiration for it has increased even more. One of the criticisms against it is that it feels like a collection of scenes and not a coherent story, which I think is valid up to a point. I mean, again, like I said, upon rewatch, you really see how all these stories are interwoven, how they blend together and how characters relate to one another. But I just think, I mean, it's almost like a collection of short stories and Tarantino is just hitting them out of the park each and every time. Again, as you talked about the first scene, which doesn't come back, until the very end of the movie with Tim Roth as Pumpkin and his girlfriend as Honey Bunny comes back at the very end where Jules and Vincent Jackson and Travolta are sitting there at the diner that's being robbed. It's just incredible. And that scene, you know, pull out my wallet. Which one is it? It's the one that says bad mother lover on it. Except yeah. doesn't say mother lover. <laughs> um, and, you know, all that, uh, the scene, you know, the say what again scene. Oh, yes. With Samuel L. Jackson's monologue, which I memorized as, as a 14, 15-year-old. Ezekiel 25, 17. And the story with Butch and him and Marcellus's run-in with the two pawn shop owners, Zed, a.k.a. Zed's yes. dead, baby. Zed's dead. And as well as just... <laughs> The craziness with Mia Wallace overdosing on heroin and Vincent Vega rushing to get her EpiPen shot or whatever, adrenaline shot, mm-hmm. and, and just so much more. This uh, to Harvey Keitel, the wolf bailing out Jules yeah. and Vincent after they accidentally shoot Marvin in the face in the back of Jules's car. <laughs> Truly just, just great. Great storytelling. And it's one that I feel like no matter where or when it's on, I'm watching and I'm turning it. And it, that's also the beauty is like of it being these different stories that it's like, you, like, even if you come in and you're at the scene where Mia and Vincent are dancing at um, the diner, again, you can know like, oh, well, next is this scene, uh, you know, or, right. oh, well, we still have this other scene coming up. Exactly. It's really just great. Mm-hmm. Truly amazing. And I think it's truly one of the best movies probably of the century. I know on IMDb, it rates pretty high. It's in the top rated eight movies on IMDb, which arguably you could say doesn't mean too much, given that, again, Shawshank Redemption ranks as number (laughs) one, which 
love Shawshank. The Godfather, Godfather wow. Part Two, definitely better, extre- extremely better. So, but still, it's it's incredible how it's got so much renown, and I think it deserves it. Yeah, and as we're talking about, you know, two Best Picture winners, The Shawshank Redemption and The Godfather Part Two. Pulp Fiction was not, in fact, nominated for Best Picture, but lost to Forrest Gump that year in 94. It was very surprising that Forrest Gump won, but it was a very tough year. If you look yeah. at the nominees for Best Picture of 94, it's crazy. Yes. Um, Best Picture, we had Quiz Show, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, and Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Well, I do believe Forrest Gump is incredible is amazing mm-hmm. looking back on it now it's it's hard to say that that is the best picture at least for me given that it mm-hmm. was up against pulp fiction and shawshank but forrest gump a very good feel-good movie also kind of sad and hard but just it, it was yeah. tom hanks robert zemeckis i mean it was just crazy it, it's hard it, it's a hard loss I think that falls to one of the years. It's just one of the years where it's just tough competition. You know, if you would have taken it and put it in another year, I think it would have had a better shot. But I don't know. I think if we go back now, I feel like Pulp or Shawshank tanks it over Gump. It's hard to say. Hard to say. (laughs) Which one do you think? (laughs) I think that it was rightly so that Pulp Fiction did win for Best Original Screenplay. Mm -hmm. And so... I think between screenplay, best picture, and best director, it can probably be interchanged between about five movies every year. You know, with Parasite winning this year, it won both for original screenplay and best picture. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not as always the case, um, but sometimes a movie is just very heavily based in the screenplay as Pulp Fiction and Parasite both are. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas other times it's all about the overall picture, so mm. um, the cinematography, the production design, the how well the actors portrayed their characters, and so mm-hmm. I would say I I still got to say Forrest Gump. You still got to give it to Forrest. I'll I'll grant okay. you that it's it it is a good movie. Only and... with the exception that Pulp Fiction won for screenplay. That is my only concern. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know what? There's nothing we can do. Forrest Gump did win it. And so there you yes. go. You got it. And Maybe so now- his 10th movie will just be a revisionist history about him going back to the 94 Academy Award yes. winning for Best Picture. <laughs> yes. His autobiographical 10th film. Yes. 10th and um, final movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, so anyways, I, I don't know if you have your your rankings of all his movies or not. But for me, I just thought it would be fun just as we wrap this up to go through them. For me, ranked in order from least favorite to most favorite, I have Death Proof at nine, haven't seen it. The Hateful Eight at eight. Django Unchained at seven, actually. I'm sorry, Elaine. Wow. Jackie Brown at six. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at five. Inglorious Bastards four. Kill Bill three. Reservoir Dogs at two, and Pulp Fiction at one. Elaine, do you know your ranking? I do. Jackie Brown and Death Proof sit at eight and nine since I have not seen them. I'm sorry, Aaron, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is at nine for me. That's understandable. It's all right. I'm sorry. Technically, it's at seven right now. And then for number six, The Hateful Eight. Number five, Reservoir Dogs. Number four, Kill Bills, Volume 1 and 2. Glorious Bastards, number three. On Django Unchained for number two and Pulp Fiction as my top Quentin Tarantino film. I will say though, The Hateful Eight is one of those movies that I watched with my dad. And as we were watching it, that th- three hour plus movie did go by very quickly. So it is such a good movie while you were watching it. Yes. Yeah. No. I will say. And again, they're, they're great. It, uh, not, yeah. not to say these movies aren't great, but it's just, again, there's some that we like better than others. I also, yeah, I just want to shout out Jackie Brown. Honestly, it was number six spot. Could have possibly crept up. That, I argue, is one where Tarantino might have just been at the peak of his powers, just where he was in his career. 
at that time, he had been coming off of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. So there's just money coming at him. You have Pam Greer as Jackie Brown, strong female lead, just like Kill Bill, Samuel L. Jackson, Michael Keaton, Robert De Niro, Chris Tucker, and the list goes on. I honestly think that was a great movie. Unfortunately, it is very much slept on, but is actually very good. I, I think is is one of the best. And maybe if I rewatch it a few other times, who knows? Maybe it'll it'll creep up in the list. Elaine, this has been a good pod. This has been a great conversation. Yes. And I appreciate you coming on and talking about one of my favorite directors with me. Thanks for having me. It's been been grand. Yes. Well, to all you listening at home, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to Elaine. Go watch some of these movies. Let us know what you think. And we'll see you next time. Bye.